Welcome back, everybody. I am James Schaefer of Turo University in Times Square, New York City. This is episode four of the EdUp International podcast. This is part two, the story of the great June Sadowski Devarez of International Education Training Services. She has passed on the legacy to Jesse Rule of Sevis Education and Consulting Limited. If you'd like to reach out to Jesse, he's at seviusconsulting.com or find him on LinkedIn, J-E-S-S-E-R-U-H-L. This episode also mentions the great organization One to World here in the greater New York City area. If you are an international educator in the greater New York City area, please check them out. That's One to World. O-N-E-T-O-W-O-R-L-D dot O-R-G here in the fantastic city of New York City. But let's get right back into episode four. If you're hearing this for the first time, please stop, go back and listen first to episode three. That's the first 45 minutes of our conversation. And here is the final 40, 45 minutes of our conversation with June Sadowski Devarez. IETS founder and president, and Jesse Rule, the president of Sevis Education and Consulting LLC. Well, before I, that, I had told you about Lula Hampton, who is the New York school officer at Federal Plaza for INS, and who is just like one of the most wonderful people on the face of this earth and cared so much about international students and attended every NAFSA regional conference, you could imagine. And then there was a fellow at the federal level down in Washington who was in charge of the entire country. And his name was Maury Beret. I don't know how I even remember his name. And I met him at a NAFSA conference and we just became good buddies. And I remember going down to Washington to see him one time at immigration at INS in Washington. And his office was like this little tiny hole in the wall with like one desk and a copier. And it was like stacked to the ceiling with papers. And this was the one, the only guy in charge of immigration for the entire US of A. And here he was sitting and chatting with me and, and going, let's go out to lunch, June. <laughs> but that was the relationship that I had. Oh, and if I had a student that was stuck at the airport, I could call the guy who was in charge of the incoming students and say, I've got a problem with a foreign student coming in. Can you help him, Mr. Kim? And oh yeah, I'll take care of him, June. This was the kind of thing that I had all the way um, through my time at at St. John's. And so we were talking about how when Sevis was born, that's when I decided I had to leave the university um, because I could no longer, I knew that the training needs of the profession was going to be through the roof with Sevis. Because not only were you talking about institutions that um, really had not done a good job on record keeping. <laughs> um, and we now have to dealing with an online tracking system. 
just imagine this, the technology piece alone, um, it was overwhelming. And so I left St. John's in the fall of 2002 um, to get prepared for SEVIS coming out in 2003, uh, January 2003. And I was ambitious enough to uh, say I was going to have my first SEVIS workshop in March of 2003, meaning it was only three months old. And I had to get a, a ballroom at a hotel for the oh. people. There were I, I was there. Was, oh, you were there? Yes, on 10th I'll Avenue, I believe. Part of that. The story that goes with that is I was in those days, everything I did was on paper. So, you know, you got notebooks and everything was printed and all that sort of stuff. And so I'm rushing off to the printer to pick up uh, all the materials for the workshop. And I slip on black ice and break my ankle. And this was the week before the workshop. And so I'm having surgery and a plate put in and there was no SEVIS workshop. So that was the first thing that happened. So instead of it being in March, it was in June. And we contacted everybody about, do you want a refund? I did not lose one person. Everybody who had registered for March stayed <laughs> and waited for me to do it in June. I mean, that was like the biggest compliment I could ever have gotten <laughs> that these people, either that or their desperation was so monumental, you know, that they were waiting for anybody to teach them how to do SEVIS. And it was in the ballroom. Honest to God, what did I have? 7,500 people in that room? I've never forgotten that. So anyway, that was the beginning of SEVIS. And it was a nightmare and everything about it was a nightmare. And of course, now foreign students were in general the enemy, um, whereas before we had been welcoming um, and, and focusing in on, you know, diversity and, and cross-cultural communication and it all went to hell in a handbasket, pardon my French. And it was suddenly all compliance and adversarial and that these people didn't belong here and they, what, why don't they all go home? And uh, it was a bad time. And, and let me uh, bring in Jesse. What else Jessie. can I say about it? I'll bring in Jesse because he's been talking about regulations versus policy, regulations versus guidance. So, so back then, how were they giving guidance? Was that coming by paper? Was that how was how was guidance being given back then around 2003 to 2007? Let's say, what what was it back then? Um, because I know you're always going to say regulations matter. Regulations are what count. But what was the thing that was happening opposite that opposite the regulations back then? 2003 yeah at conferences at conferences i'm cutting in on you jesse sorry right. but basically there was no, there was no yeah no email or communication from the government we all got what we called the advanced sheets you got pieces of paper coming in the mail right so saying what they were yeah 
So the conferences are where well, a lot of that discussion. NAF, you'd go to a NAFSA conference and you would hear some immigration officer stand up here, stand up and say, well, you're going to have to do X, Y, or Z. And I'd be sitting there going, no, we don't have to do X, Y, or Z. And all these people around me would be muttering to themselves like, what do you mean you don't? He just said we have to do it. I said, it's not in the regulations. There's nothing there. And there's no regulation that would say that that is necessary. There's no policy. So as I always said, if there's nothing in writing, it's all just talk. And talk doesn't mean anything legally. But that was a major part of IATS training was to try to empower people. And I know Jesse does the same thing of that, you know, because everybody, when they would hear the government say anything, they would just, you know, they would lose it. We're going to have to change everything. We're going to have to do this. And I'd be going, no, uh -uh. Mm -hmm. relax, take it easy. They, they cannot hold you to that. But that was intimidation, government by intimidation, really. But, but that's one of the things, June, you did so well. You mentioned before about how you tried to make the regulations easy. So a, a new person coming to F1 advising and you see all the regulations, it's it's like you said, it's terrifying. So how did how did you that's go about making it to, less so? That's why we tried to take it apart. I love dissecting you know, things. Uh, and and then going and looking at, we used to give all these case studies, Jesse, you do the same thing, uh, where we would talk about something, then we'd give them a challenge with the case studies and ask them to back up what they're saying. I mean, here's a scenario and what would you do in such a situation? And, and what's your foundation for that? What is your legal foundation for that? Um, you have to be able to start looking at citations and in lieu of a citation, is there an articulated policy? Are they still doing any articulated policies these days or um, uh, what did they call them? Operations instructions? Are they doing anything like that anymore? I don't think to my so, knowledge, right? what would they come out through to us as PDSOs? They will they will send the instructions out and we'll get them um, as guidance. So I think they do the same thing, but they're have slightly different titles to them now. But I did want to mention Judy. those have to be those things have to be vetted. You know, when it's articulated policy, they have to be vetted, they have to go through various stages. That's why it took so long. Um, for those things to happen, but a lot of things stopped, and I don't know where it stopped. So you don't think they're doing that much of it anymore. So that's why I would talk about law, policy, and practice, and um, you know, and you have to know the difference. And I think that's still key. Of course, nowadays you have the online training. Um, and I think a lot of people are relying on that. And I don't know how close that is to the regulations. You remember in my workshops, I was always focusing in on things about CPT and stuff, stuff especially um, that were, it was in the online training, but was not consistent with regulation. Um, so, you know, I don't know. If that is continuing, I think that nowadays people are relying on that for their training resource. Mm -hmm. um, 
which can be problematic. Study in the States is the first go-to location. And one of my homework assignments for the students I teach now is to give them a section of the study in the States to compare to the regulation. And Good say, job, where, <laughs> is, Where's the inconsistency here? Yes. And what, what, what will we do about it? Good job. But to be honest, and Jim, you did give some very nice titles to the government. For example, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you always call USCIS Santa Claus? <laughs> I said give her, they, give her they the were, gifts. <laughs> they, I called them the warm and fuzzy people. Exactly. Um, the ones that will be will give you gifts if you've been a good boy or girl. <laughs> That's what I used to say. Uh, and you called CBP the gatekeepers, right? Yes. <laughs> I tried to make things simple for people, you know. Well, to, I, to no, I, I, I attribute those titles still to you when I get oh, to USCIS. And I like how to try to make people US, laugh at the same USCIS time. USCIS gives good gifts, gives gifts, gives gifts to good boys and girls, students. Yes, indeed. I still say that. And then, um, you know, one of my favorite things was that I was always, my mantra is, it's all, it's all about status. And I said it so much that at the end of one of my graduating level three classes, they gave me a t-shirt with that printed on it, that it's all about status. And I said, I should sell them at a NAFSA conference, you know, because Everything is about status. And I always said status is so simple. Doing what you came here to do in the time you've been given to do it in. At status. Period. And so when people would get confused about, well, this student withdrew from class. I'd say how you figure it out. You know, were they doing what they came here to do? in the time they were given to do it in. And people could, you know, figure it out. I wanted them to be able to figure these things out on their own and make it so simple. And that's the major change I saw over the years is that I kept making things simpler and simpler and simpler and simpler. And, and even giving other workshops that would hone in on just one topic, like I did webinars on understanding financial documents, um, just that, so that you could just focus in on one topic. And uh, so I had, there was so much to do. And I could have done a lot more if I could have cloned myself into five more people, um, but I, I couldn't do any more. And I said, I do still want to have a little bit of a life. <laughs> and I would say you probably thought you were starting to have a little bit of life. But then 2010 arrived and President Barack Obama signed into law the Accreditation of English Language Training Programs Act. And it was time for all the proprietary language training programs to get accredited or yeah. to lose their chance to issue I-20s. And yeah. I was heavily involved in that, in everything. Oh, I remember. You You really were the trailblazer with that, Jim. 
It was getting your accreditation with CEA, Commission on English Language Program Accreditation, or ACCET, uh, telling them that you had New York State's Bureau of Proprietary School Supervision certification did not cut it. You had to have both. Uh, and they were off. There you were. You had to spend quite a long time. It was a two-year period to get that accreditation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was quite a big deal. Interesting, if you are a English language program housed in a university, you did not need to have that accreditation. You could voluntarily get it, but you did not need to have it to keep issuing I-20s. Uh, because I moved to a university to start an English language institute at the university. And I'm like, oh, I don't have to get accredited. I did everything by the book and did everything that someone who is credited would do, but it was unnecessary. So it was quite a burden on the proprietary schools. Uh, but it was a good thing because it really got you to get all your ducks in order, really get on top of everything. So. Yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah. Then people had to come up with good policies and procedures. Yes, exactly. They were forced to. Yeah. Another thing that happened in that time frame, I think somewhere in the, that same time frame was when I started realizing that some of the people that were attending the F1C Vis Essentials programs were from uh, prep schools, high schools. And these people were sitting through um, courses that had absolutely nothing to do with their students. So I'm going, they don't need practical training. There's no practical training for high school students. There's no CPT. They don't need level three, basically, um, except for regaining status. And so I started um, the, the uh, program for K through 12 schools too, um, which is shorter, of course. And Jesse is still con continuing with that um, as well. The K through 12 training, it's a big deal. K through, yeah. I mean, I, I think they had told me I the number of K through 12 schools that receive is approved. It's a huge population of schools. Did you have a lot of make... questions there, right? With those. I said it's F1C this light. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. I think I want to hear Jesse's story of meeting you and doing the first training with you and why that conversation continued right up until 2020. So what is your story, Jesse? Well, first of all, I made the mistake that some of my students still do, which was I saw levels one, two, and three, and I thought, oh, well, I've been at PSO for a while. I'll just jump in at level two. Um, and sure enough, when I did that, I had such a good time at level two. I went to June and said, can I can I take all three now? But the, the significance was as soon as I sat down in class and not even there or an hour or two, I realized you know, I need to have my laptop out. And I need to be looking at my school CBIS record because I think I need to make some adjustments. So I was doing them even on the breaks. 
And then we would get to the things as Jim mentioned, the case studies. And the wonderful thing was we were there with colleagues and we all had the same questions and similar situations. And we weren't there with our supervisors and our bosses so we could uh, really talk shop and complain about our schools. So that, I, I just took away the sense of learning where things fit together from the, a big picture point of view. Now, of course, June, as you know, if you've taken her courses, and I still do the same thing, every single slide practically refers to the regulation, but it's not important for our students. It's not important for our PDSOs to have every single regulation memorized, but they need to know the big picture and where does everything fit and where to look if in fact they have these questions that arise. And we, we've been in these, this field for decades and questions still come up and we have to sit back and scratch our heads and think, wow, I can't believe I've never been asked that question. However, I know where to look. Do we always find the answers? No, but that's what my takeaway from uh, teaching or having June teach me. Plus the fact that not only were, were the trainings so valuable and technical and learning a lot, but there was the, the personal aspect to it. So it, was, it wasn't just like it did a, uh, I went to a, a class, got the information, took a test, paid the tuition and left. No, the relationship with June continued and, you know, mentoring tens, hundreds, probably thousands of people is what she was able to do. And I would not be the PDSO that I am today, nor the trainer that I am today without having taken that time at IETS. And I think I've taken every single class at IETS <laughs> that IETS put on. If not twice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was held back. I tell people, yes, June wouldn't let me pass this level. <laughs> but one of the things that I loved about the in-person classes was that I, I could see when people weren't getting it. And I, I mean, I tried to make it a safe place for people to ask questions. And I always said in my book, there's no such thing as a stupid question. The only stupid question is the one that you don't ask. And other than that, I tried to make you could, you, there's nothing that you can say here that won't be okay to ask. And some still people were afraid to ask questions. And, but I could see when somebody didn't get it. I could see a look in their eyes or a frown. And I would go up and I'd say, Jesse, you've got a question there. And I remember I, they were always so surprised that I could see it and you're not asking it. And I tried to get them to do it. And the other thing that I loved doing was identifying the people that had an affinity for this stuff because they're not many. And for most of us, it's been a struggle. Every once in a while, there's somebody who just stands out like, how did they get that so quickly, you know? And one of my favorite stories was exactly that. I was doing an on-site training at a college and the um, one of the people there was a director of admissions. And um, I he just was amazing and and what he was able to put together in this training and later on I took him aside at the end of the the program and I said to him I said if you ever are interested in a different career 
you should think about this <laughs> because you've got such an affinity for this that, it, that, that doesn't come along every day. And he told me later, years later, how much that meant to him. And he did get out of that field. And now he's a, a senior level person at a major uh, university in New York City, um, you know, doing this all the time. And he says it was because I said that to him <laughs> that that he really took it to heart and he enjoyed it. That was the other thing, obviously, that he enjoyed uh, what he was learning. And uh, so that to me was always fun was to identify certain people and mentor. And I took a, you know, the same kind of thing to Jesse. There was, I could see that he had uh, an affinity uh, for this. And so when I was looking to, I agonized over retirement for a number of years before I actually proceeded with it. And I thought maybe I could prolong retirement if I had help and could have co-trainers. And I, so I started bringing on co-trainers and people to work with. And, and Jesse uh, came along at just that time for me. And it worked out really well that, that he then, when I decided I was going to retire, I mean, the thought of giving up and just closing the doors on something I had spent 30 years developing was heartbreaking. And so I was so glad when Jesse was interested in, in taking it on. So he has gotten the, the core of all the IETS training and is continuing to bring that forward to everybody. Yes. Yep, and, yep. and let's give, let's give uh, a shout out to all those who helped you at IETS. I'm forgetting what was the name of your administrator that you took on and who was with you for so long? My admin, well, your, I mean, your full-time employee. Well, I didn't, I never had a full-time employee, but I had several part-time employees that did all, all the, all the bookkeeping, all the billing, all the registrations, all the everything. Jenny Cronin was the last one that I had um, okay. with me for four years. And, uh, she was wonderful. I had wonderful people. And Jennifer Golden was my first. Mm -hmm. And she's now at Yeshiva University. Oh. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So Jen was with me for many, many years. And uh, they were the ones behind the, the scenes taking care of all the administrative stuff. Because I couldn't handle the administrative. I mean, this was a tiny little business. And I did an enormous amount considering... Um, and there were others who thought I should have expanded it more, but I could only do what I could do. And I didn't want to it end up killing myself off. And uh, so, it, but it was wonderful. And I decided I was going to focus in on the New York metropolitan area. I mean, New York has like 300 institutions in it. And I mean, I felt that that was plenty, but people did hear about us from across the country. And lots of times you would have gone and gotten a job in California and then you were sending your people from California to New York for training. I had a lot of that, you know, second and third generation people um, coming from training where they had been through uh, IETS years ago because I'd been around for so long. And you had, uh, you mentioned Sal Longarino from Fordham, <clears throat> Ward Deutschman. I said the only other person that I could have just 
turned everything over to, um, I hope Sharif isn't listening because he'll kick me, was uh, Helen Leonard at NYU. Mm -hmm. Helen Leonard has the same uh, view on the regulations and everything that Jesse and I do. And she did a lot of uh, training uh, with me in the last few years of IATS um, and just a wonderful person to work with. And then I worked with the Goldsteins and Lucy mm -hmm. Chung and um, Michael Goldstein a lot. They did workshops with me and then that was wonderful. And then I had Makita King who broke my heart and left the field and decided to become a mom. <laughs> <laughs> and she had done a lot of training uh, with me and was my co-trainer for many years uh, towards the end of IETS as well. And she's now working at a prep school in um, Maryland, I believe it is, um, as a school counselor. So I've had wonderful people um, to work with and, and that was all a joy. Jesse and I always had just so much fun when we would do training together. And then COVID changed everything for us um, and, and what it did to the profession. Oh my gosh. Right. Electronic I-20s. Right, yes. And I do have to uh, make sure I get in a shout for Wonder World so that uh, oh, I can yes. face Marissa Silva. Um, but what was great about Wonder World, there were monthly meetings full of And I moderated the regulatory yes. stuff. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah. and Michael and Lucy often sat next to you. Uh, and that some... was one of the biggest compliments I ever got was when One to World asked me to moderate the regulatory um, session. I, I remember when I was asked to do that, I was speechless. And they had said that the membership was complaining because when they would have the regulatory session, they never knew who was right. <laughs> so they asked to have me come in so that I could always root them in the regulations on things when people were struggling with stuff. And I did that for many, many years and I loved every moment of it. And Michael and I would always have a hoot of a time together uh, doing that. And I miss them terribly. So if you're listening, Michael, I miss you and Lucy. <laughs> and the kids are too big now. The Their kids were <laughs> the kids were in Montreal at uh, the NAFSA by regional. Oh my so, goodness. Yeah, I saw the pictures, yeah. So, but um, COVID and what it did to the profession, you guys know as much as I do on that. Right. And speaking of that, Jesse, on to you to speak about backbone. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I, I still, in my training, uh, referenced June. And I recall, the, again, it was my first day uh, training with her and she got to the slide and she would ask us, what do you think the PDSO's most important body part is? And I was like, it's a body is, asset, I think. Yeah, oh, I thought, I don't know it's body part. And I, in fact, now in my training, I have a, a, a slide of a backbone. Because, <laughs> and COVID certainly is a perfect example of this where PDSO's really are put in the hot seat. And we are squeezed between what the government says we have to do as compliance officers and the people who are signing our paychecks. So you do need to have that backbone. And uh, truer words were never spoken by June, that's for sure. 
Well, and another thing that has changed in the profession, and you can guide me on this, is um, how much general counsels are involved in uh, the work. There are many schools now where DSOs don't have as much freedom to make decisions as they used to because the risk officers want things nice and neat. <laughs> that is... That's a good and bad situation. One of the concerns I have, and I teach this in my advanced training, is where does F1 advising stop and where does the unauthorized practice of law begin? So yes, most of us in this field, we know a lot of immigration law, but do we want to be stepping outside the scope of what our jobs our job responsibilities are. And when I see advice being given on listservs and when I hear what uh, students are telling me their PDSOs and their DSOs told them, it just makes me concerned. So I do think the concern about liability on the part of the institution as well as the PDSOs is warranted. Um, but on the other hand, I also see quite regularly that you have quote unquote, immigration lawyers really not understanding the regulations either. So once again, we're put in a tough spot. These lawyers are telling us things that we know are not true, but who are we? We're, we're PDSOs, we're making a fraction of the amount of money that you are earning. So again, backbone. One of my favorite stories, Jesse, occurred when I was at St. John's and I got a call from an immigration attorney who wanted me to send him a Form I-20 so he could fill it out for a student. It, exactly, it, exactly. <laughs> that was, of course, when it was a paper I-20. <laughs> I, said, oh. I said, attorneys do not fill out Form I-20s. And Jesse, you had a story about a panicked phone call. Oh over a change of status student? Uh, of all the things that I'm thankful that I'm able to do now that the sad day of June's retirement has passed is to keep the practice of letting my students and June's former students know that here's my number, call me up. Because having that lifeline that we were talking about, June, you said back when you were first starting, call your friends. Well, in some ways that still does apply. And I uh, probably, it was over the summertime, the end of the summer after I had just taken my training with June and I had an F2 do a change of status to F1. And I didn't tell her, probably because I didn't realize that you can't leave the US while your change of status is pending, right? Because it'll be deemed abandoned. Well, she left and then she returned and she came into my office in the fall and she explained that she had gone home for the summer and I didn't know what to do because I thought, well, she her status as F2 would be um, ended and her application to change the status was denied. So I called June. What do you think she said? Well, Jesse, what does her I-94 say? Like, well, I don't know. I didn't check. <laughs> so literally June is on the phone and I'm frantically typing out I-94 and getting the search engine and sure enough, F1DS. So June said, well, Jesse, if, if CBP allowed her in F1DS, you now register her <laughs> as a student <laughs> and you know, your work is done. So I, I tell all my students that how important it is to have the connection and the ability to have someone there that you can call when these situations arise. And they, I get 
three or four calls a week uh, from oh, good. people that I've trained and able to do that. And it's not a burden. That's wonderful time to catch up. Oh, no, I love However, that. yeah, I do, I do take, I do put on my teaching hat. So when they ask me a question that I've taught them the answer, uh, I don't just give it to them. <laughs> what do you think? What are exactly. the issues? Yeah. Okay, I, re I refer them to the day and the level and okay, here's, what did we talk about? We talked about reduced course load for uh, being in the United States. So things like you, that. You even answer phone questions the way I did, Jesse. <laughs> I, well, I tell them, look, send me an email and then we have to talk on the phone because we can't. I can't answer the majority of the questions that you have by way of email because I have questions that exactly. typically I will need to ask. And um, so old fashioned telephone calls or what we do is a simple set up a Zoom meeting because then uh, that also gives us the up upside of being able to do screen shares. So modern means of instruction, there's downside in the fact that I don't get to see my students face to face and do our little huddles when we're doing our case studies. So what we have, however, is the breakout groups in Zoom, but then we also have that ability to do screen share. So that is a very, very valuable compromise that works well. Well, I hope one day there will still be some opportunities for in-person workshops. Yeah, and Definitely. so do I, yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe Philadelphia? Next year's bi-regional in October. There you go. And speaking of that. Next year's, I thought next year was in Atlantic City. Uh, there, no, Atlantic City, I think is, I'll look it up. I'm not sure. We do have Atlantic City and Philadelphia coming up. They're both opportunities. So I'll get my, my ducks in order and figure out which one is which. Uh, Though I do want to make sure, Jesse, so Jesse Rule, you are the president of CVIS Education and Consulting LLC, and this is the small company that has taken over the legacy of June's IETS. So you are teaching the content that June developed over 30 years. It's wonderful that this content is still going strong still relevant after all this time. And, and right. you, I, you need to know that Simon and Garfunkel still plays a major role in reinstatement. But you don't have <laughs> Curious George, do you? I, I don't, but Curious George, he's he's your pal. So I <laughs> I felt Curious George went with you, but I did hold on to Simon and Garfunkel. I always and, called my students Curious George, Jim. Yes, <laughs> I remember But, him. but oh, we sing. I'm we so sing bridge over troubled water when we get to reinstatement. <laughs> the bridge over troubled water. Exactly. I, don't, I do not know where that came from, that idea, but it sure did explain what it meant uh, for for the what status is there when you're reinstated. It, it does a lot better than that Bernard's letter. Oh. <laughs> we, we pass out that Bernard's letter and no one reads it. <laughs> no, no, uh, uh, oh, geez. Unbelievable. Oh, All right. It's been a great conversation. Uh, so, Jesse, this is Jesse Rule. That's R U H L, Sevis Education and Consulting LLC. That's civiseducation.com in the great city of Philadelphia.
And I can't wait to meet you in person in Atlantic City or Philadelphia. And of course, I mean, June, I, I just have to say it, you are the leading voice in F1 and J1 compliance, period. So June Sadowski-Devarez and its International Education Training Services, it's a legacy of 30 years, and we're so happy that it's been passed on to see this education. Uh, let's go first. Jesse, do you have any final words to say? Only thank you so much for this time, Jim. When June retired, you know, with COVID happening, we didn't really have an opportunity to get together and have a big party at a ballroom as she deserved. So I'm glad that even after three years that we were able to put this together for her. So thanks again. Uh, and I, I feel like having had the opportunity uh, to create IETS was like the gift of a lifetime. And what I loved the most it was helping uh, people make sense of what they were doing. I mean, oh, and one other thing I will add was that when I went to graduate school, I wanted to specialize in international students. And there still is no graduate program for that. There is international education is not what you're uh, getting with inter, it, it's not going to teach you about international students. It's comparative educational systems, as far as I understand. I still think here, all these years later, there is no graduate program in international student affairs. And I think there should be. I don't know if there's any, it used to be Leslie College did something, but if you wanna get into this field, I mean, when I was at TC, I was fortunate, my academic advisor said, we could try to piece some things together that will make sense for you. But I still think there needs to be a curriculum uh, for people that want to go into this because the diversity of what you're learning is like no other graduate program. You have to you have to know something about law. I, I used to go and speak to the law school at St. John's. I mean, they, lawyers get very little information about immigration law. It's one course, I think, right? I mean, there is so little available for people that want to get education in this area. And I think that that is still a whole in the profession. So if we have any people out there that are trying to make their way and say, what do I do for higher education? Um, it's really a challenge for you. And I think that that's why a lot of people are going for JDs these days uh, in this field. So it's, it, right. but it's been an honor for me to have done it. And I'm so glad that I did. 30 years was not enough actually. <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, from the bottom of the hearts of thousands of international education professionals, it, it really was touching to be in your class in person and just see your empathy and see your caring. So thank you on behalf of all of us. And Jesse, any final, final, final words? Just thanks again. All right. So thank this has you. been... You're welcome. This has been episode four of our two-part episode three and episode four, June Sadowski-Devarez and International Education Training Services and Jesse Rule 
of Civis Education and Consulting LLC, carrying on the legacy. Thanks, everybody. This is EdUp International. You have just EdUped in an international way. And we'll see you here soon. And bye-bye. Thank you, everybody.